Weather today in the ground. I love you so badly. I could... They're solid plastic, so don't settle for imitation. But the senator, while insisting he was not intoxicated, could not explain his nudity. <laughs> Evening, this is Lucy Valden, and this is the best of an Alan Smithy podcast. You give us 69 minutes and we'll give you 69 minutes of words. Do you race cars? Do you play tennis? Do you fondle women? But do you get weekends off? Are you your own boss? Not every drunk can be a poet, but don't you wish you were? From the 3rd of January 2014, it's a double feature of Steve Valden's 1981 film, Arthur, and Bard Yorkin's 1987 sequel, Arthur II. On the rocks. And when they tell you that you're crazy, you gotta try to settle down. You gotta turn yourself around. Life is more than just good times and parties. You got the moon in New York City. You got the Hi everyone, welcome to an Alan Smithy podcast. My name is Matt and my blog is cinemachine.blogspot.com. And I'm Andrew and my blog is thestopbutton.com. And this is our podcast where we talk about movies. Um, so this episode is a Arthur double feature. This is uh, one that we've been meaning to do for a long time. I think basically because I, I always knew that you held Arthur in high regard as a comedy classic and you were always uh, uh, shit-talking Arthur suit <laughs> on the rocks. And then just before we started recording, I was shocked to learn that you've never even seen Arthur II. Your your opinion of it was just based on the trailer alone. I- and I saw the trailer before I watched Arthur II, and the trailer actually has all the funniest lines. <laughs> so, And it has the funniest um, – one of the funnier shots too. It has Paul Benedict um, sitting with him while he's in the bath. You know, and even in the movie when that pops up and we're getting ahead of ourselves. But, yeah, it's it's one of the more it, – it, it suggests there are going to be iconic images of Arthur in this movie, and there are not. Right. Okay, but, yeah, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, uh, Arthur, um, my first exposure to just the concept of Arthur was that for some reason they made a lot of jokes about it on The Critic, the John Lovitz cartoon right. that Fox – yeah – um, they do a fake trailer for Arthur three revenge of the liver. And he's like talking to a female doctor and she's saying that you've got acute cirrhosis and, and you have a cute little vat. And, and then why oh, there's a piano. I've got a liver the size of coconuts. So, yeah, I was just like, what, what is this? What are they making fun of? What's Arthur? And then I, you know, found out, whatever, but I didn't see the movie. I didn't see either of these movies until just now. Um, but, yeah, they made a lot of jokes about him on The Critic because then there was, like, a Little Men parody as opposed to Little Women. And it's, like, you know, Dudley Moore and Michael J. Fox and Al, uh, uh, <laughs> Joe, Joe, Joe Pesci. But whatever. I think just one of their voice actors could do a really good Dudley Moore as Arthur. So they kept working it in there. Um, right. So... Yeah, this is a really funny movie. Um, it's kind of exactly what I expected it to be, but in a good way. Um, I guess what I wasn't expecting was um, 
It's got uh, it's got kind of an edge to it that a comedy from 1981 has that you wouldn't have uh, now, and that you didn't even have in 1988. By the, by, yeah, by the by the time of Arthur too. Mainly, I'm thinking of the fact that like the big opening scene of the movie is that he picks up a hooker and takes her to a fancy restaurant which you know you could you could write that in a way that's relatively clean but um at one point you know he asks her like so why did you become a prostitute and she's like oh my dad raped me when i was 14 (laughs) and and then not only that Dudley Moore goes oh yes my father screwed me too (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's at that moment um yeah, it's it's some, yeah, really really politically incorrect. It's 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 even worse than, you know, the Ghostbusters being able to smoke in the first Ghostbusters, <laughs> thus setting a bad example for the kids. Well, yeah, no, it, it well, okay, it it won me over right there is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and it, it, it and when I watched it again this time, that's that's I was like, "Oh yeah, that's right. It's really funny." Um and that's why uh, the guy who wrote it, Steve Gordon's, like sort of held in really high regard by comedy writers, and he died right after it came out. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I didn't even realize that until I was looking at IMDb and thinking, like, uh, oh wow, how come he hasn't directed anything lately? Oh, oh yeah, he didn't just retire and live off the success of Arthur. Or and, Arthur Two. And for Arthur, some reason, for some reason, I thought Arthur Two was going to be like Fletch Lives. Speaking of bad comedy sequels, where it's like, you know, Michael Ritchie comes back, the director comes back, but they get some new writer who just writes a crappy script. Nah, he's just they couldn't get. It was impossible to get the original writer or director back on Arthur Two. Yeah, they didn't do well. Let's not get. <laughs> I've I've been saving up terrible things to say about that movie for a day okay. now. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so one of the things with Arthur that it really, and I think that I don't, it, it was very well regarded and then I think everybody kind of forgot about it. Um, even now, I guess you can buy a Blu-ray double feature of the, yeah, you can – oh, lucky, lucky people can buy the Blu-ray double feature that includes Arthur 2. And I think that's the first time that uh, Arthur was released on uh, a home video format in original aspect ratio because the one we watched was uh, when they released it online. So it's been – it was one of the first Warner Brothers DVD releases I remember and Amazon yeah. still has that crappy – like you can almost see that it's the um, snapper case hmm. that Warner used, and it was pan and scan, and yeah, they just they just crapped it out and forgot about it. And some of it, I feel like. So it's, do you think? Do you think sorry. maybe that was kind of due to Dudley Moore being considered a flash in the pan? Because right, right before. Right before this, there was Ten, which was a Blake Edwards movie. And I mean, God, you talk about people who, you know, comedy writer directors who used to be gods and now nobody remembers them. But uh, yeah, no, Blake Edwards made Ten with Dudley Moore, which I haven't seen either. Apparently, he plays kind of a lush in that one as well. And that was a big hit. And then Arthur came out like, you know, two years later. But 
Dudley Moore did not continue to be a movie star in America after this. Well, he made it a little bit longer because I I um I got curious and I looked it up and it, Mickey and Maud from '84 still did well, but it was like Santa Claus did him in. Oh, that's right, yeah. Santa Claus the movie. God. And then, and then by the time he did Like Father, Like Son with uh, Kirk Cameron, I think <laughs> I think that was. Oh the, man, that's right. He yeah, did a, he did a lame father and son swap yeah. bodies comedy. Oh, and you know what? He I haven't seen this, but he was in a remake of Unfaithfully Yours, the Preston Sturges movie, mm-hmm. and I think you you wrote a good review of that on Stop By yeah. once, right? It's, yeah, it's not as it's not as complex as the first one, which is very awkward when you're watching it but yeah it, it's good i mean i i like dudley moore pretty much until about you know arthur <laughs> and then well i mean the the thing is is that he was going slowly he, he died of a brain disease that was you know various parts of his brain were shutting down so when everybody was Laughing about how he was like sleeping in somebody's backyard, like the Margot Kidder thing. Nah, he was he was like dying. It was awful. Oh god. Yeah. Um, but I actually remember him doing. I, I I remember the previews to the Adventures of Milo and Otis, which was some pet movie that they dubbed. Oh yeah, yeah. that's a beloved uh, yeah children's little puppy and kitty having adventures movie. Yeah, and he narrates it. And I actually remember that when um, the pre- I remember watching it as a kid, but I don't remember any narration, yeah. which is odd. You know, they made that movie in Japan, and they you know went through like dozens and dozens of puppies and kitties because they just don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, there's no a- animal protection society. No animals were harmed in the yeah. That Milo and Otis doesn't have that seal on it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but, so back to our. Oh shit! I want to say it now. Um, so, Arthur's That's why those also stunts are so good. <laughs> it's one of those, um, especially when you watch the second one that was that's from '88. The first one's from that you know sort of transition period from late '70s. You know, movie comedies are going to popular movie comedies are going to be like Woody Allen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean the the Woody Allen compare it, it. Well, it feels like a Woody Allen movie almost. I mean, you know, besides just the fact that it's entirely New York bound. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's like a character piece comedy, but it's about characters who are you know just deranged and kind of watching them bounce off each other, uh, or one character who's deranged anyway. But yeah, it's pretty. I mean, it's smart, and you wouldn't think like a a movie just about a guy who's drunk all the time would be that smart going off of that premise. But uh, I guess having John Gilgood as your erudite sarcastic butler really adds something because he's just, he's as dry as uh, Dudley Moore is, you know, laughing hysterically at his own jokes. And there's something, you know, boy, the, the, the charm of Dudley Moore in this movie. I mean, you'd think it'd be impossible to, enjoy a character like who's literally in his first two or three lines of dialogue he says to himself god i'm funny <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that's a that's a bad start but then but he kind of you know it's like yeah this is a fun guy to you know to watch in a movie because <laughs> you yeah. know that because you know that he's he'll he's just a big kid and he'll you know say whatever and he doesn't care 
and and he's constantly surrounded by stiffs. Yeah, and actually going back to the Woody Allen comparison, it's produced by one of his regular producers. And Jaffe and Greenhut, I think, still executive produce most of Woody Allen stuff. And it was edited by Susan E. Morris, who edited all of Woody Allen stuff at this period. And it's got that really soft, like, 80s comedy lighting that I wonder if it was just the film stock they were using back then. Because Caddyshack has scenes like that, too. Where it's yeah. that, the the light sort of bleeds. Kind of, kind of gauzy. Well, I mean, yeah. Caddyshack was... Caddyshack was filmed like you know outdoors in Florida most of it, so that's probably the you know the humidity is the reason there. I don't know, I mean, it's just a really hot summer when they filmed Arthur. Yeah, but I guess I guess what we're trying to describe is like uh, it's it's not. This is from the era when comedies didn't feel popular comedies, you know, uh, didn't feel the need to moralize at all. Um, Arthur does not reform at the end. He doesn't give up drink. He doesn't really learn anything. Um, you know, even now, I, I mean, like what in the hangover, they they have to kind of make amends for what they've done by the end of it. But I think, you know, the reason the hangover was popular is because people just wanted to see a comedy with adult men behaving badly again, as opposed to like, you know, getting a weekend pass from the wives or some lame brain thing like that. So well, yeah. in the in the Arthur remake, he. Um, I, I yeah, I need to ask you about this. You've seen the I remake have. with with Russell Brand. Yeah, yeah and in I read your review on Stop Button. Doesn't he? He goes to AA. <laughs> oh yeah. One. Oh yeah. He he cleans oh, up that's his funny. act, and yeah. you know it's yeah, just it's like funny. oh yeah, and it, but that's the Russell Brand thing because you know Russell Brand's big on. Rehab, so all of his movies, he always goes to AA. You didn't know that? Yeah. (laughs) He always ends up in rehab. That's exactly the... It's exactly the difference between comedies then and now that I'm trying to get at here. So, yeah, Arthur, right. And, you know, you tie that back to the the joke about rape. It's not a rape joke, but it's the joke of, like, Arthur is so oblivious to it. And, you know, it's like the it's a joke. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a moment. I mean, especially to be right at the beginning of the movie. I mean, you can picture people walking out of it now if there's a joke like that in the first 10 minutes, but it's a, it's a joke that requires you to know the difference between a a rape joke and uh, a joke at the expense of someone who's oblivious to horrible things (laughs) because he's, you know, because he's so self uh, involved and also the alcoholism. I mean, you know, everybody always points out like, you know, nobody, Nobody made – back in the days of W.C. Fields or whatever, you could make fun of alcoholism and drunks were funny and stuff. And I don't know. This Arthur is almost regressive in that regard, maybe even at the time because uh, – I don't know. Um, what was the what was the Billy Wilder movie? The Lost Weekend comes out and suddenly drunks aren't quite as funny they're not quite as comic instant comic fodder as they used to be but i mean you know america still drank a whole hell of a lot all the way up through the 60s maybe in the 70s you know people were self-actualizing and going to est and realizing that they you know needed to eat health food and jog and stuff like that so maybe arthur was kind of a throwback at the time i mean the fact that he's got a dry, sarcastic British butler sidekick in itself is kind of a classic comedy feel. And then 
the story that develops is kind of feels like a, you know, um, like an, an old screwball comedy plot. The the shop girl who falls in love with the millionaire and the millionaire's family doesn't uh, doesn't want him. I mean, she's she's a shoplifter girl, but it's a it's a very old it's a very nineteen forties screwball kind of comedy plot. So there's an old fashioned quality to the movie too. Maybe even at the time. Yeah, I wonder if that. I, it's it's strange because it has been so long since it's gotten any recognition. I mean, it won Gilgood won best supporting actor. The song won best song, and I my first encounter with Arthur was a music class when I was in grade school or something, and the teacher started playing the song and was shocked none of us had heard it and i was like (laughs) well when you think about it um yeah that song is like the most dated thing in the movie really it's a it's it's a burt baccarat song sung by christopher cross yeah and i mean it it sort of just fell away and so did dudley moore and foul play is the one where he was most memorable and probably still is um, 10. He's more of the straight man. I thought he's, he's like always a buffoon when he's not drunk. He's always, that's what foul play is. He's drunk and a buff and a uh, ladies man buffoon at the same time. Whereas in Arthur, he's more concentrated on being a drunk and the, mm-hmm. the way that it approaches his relationship with all the women is really interesting. And I mean, I think that's one of the really cool things about the, the Steve Gordon script is that you know, he doesn't, I think I, I reread my, my stop button review of it. And I said something about how somehow they make easy jokes work. <laughs> and you know, yeah, it's it's they're able to make yeah. Easy Arthur jokes Arthur work. makes easy Arthur makes easy jokes work by laughing hysterically uh, after he says all of them. But I, yeah. but I mean, you know, they're not easy. I shouldn't say that. I mean, they're the kind of they're the kind of one liners that he tosses. He tosses off so many of them that it's kind of hard to remember any of them. It's more just like a you know low level white noise throughout the whole movie, um, or just like a steady little. Steady little background, you know. There's always a bite with them, though. Um, like when he's out to dinner with uh, his fiance, and does he call her an asshole in this one too? And at some point, she's just rambling on. He's just like, "God, you're an asshole," and it's just. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, there's there's um, the whole relationship with Hobson is sort of where the movie deviates um, and yeah. sort of becomes... Hobson being the snooty butler. Yes. The abrasive and like... And the way they do that is is that he's... Uh, well, not just snooty, right, exactly. He's, he's, he's like a mean open, guy. He's, he's, he's openly hostile to Dudley Moore. He never, he never lets up. He's constantly just calling him an idiot, but in the most polite way possible. It's hilarious. And I wonder if, I mean, some of it, Liza Minnelli is able to make it believable that she would like uh, the Gilgood character, which is, Arthur's weird in that I I feel like it plays into some expectation of Liza Minnelli 
Like you're ex- going in, you're expecting something from Liza Minnelli, and she has to deliver some of it for the whole like thing what, to work. To, to break out into song, or uh, maybe not to break out into song, but to. I mean, Arthur plays piano. It would be a logical fit. It would be, but I think Dudley Moore also was a trained. Yeah, no, that's why it's incorporated. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about Liza Minnelli for a second. I mean, she's surprisingly good, um, and she's funny. I mean, it's it's almost like the the only real failing of the movie is that she's not as funny with him as he is with John Gilgood. Right. So once once the movie becomes more about her, you almost wish it could just keep being about Arthur and and his butler sidekick. <laughs> But, like, the scenes where she goes to home to Queens and the guy who plays her dad is really good and they create this kind of believable relationship. Um, she's even believable, like, in her waitressing right. scenes. So, you know, she's a good actress. I mean, she should be. She was, you know, she grew up on the MGM lot. Uh, but that said, she can actually almost kind of fool you into thinking she's playing, she could uh, be a working class uh, girl who shoplifts ties at expensive clothing stores. Yeah. And I think- oh, and, and that's, and that scene is like pure, you know, Preston Sturges, whatever, like with the scene where they meet, where she's right. shoplifting and she's caught. And then he pretends that she was picking something up for him. And yeah, it's very, very, uh, what's that movie with Ray Moland? Uh, well, anyways, I feel like that's what I meant by saying that she's. Some of it has to do with it being, you know, your perception of Liza Minnelli is is that she is going to be this shoplifter type thing. Just the attitude in her first scene with that her outrageous outfit and all that, and then it. The other thing is, it has really Arthur has really long sequences at the build up, and. Like with the prostitutes, they pick up the prostitutes, or he he picks up the prostitute. But there's a there's a lengthy conversation. Yeah, I mean, that's not a short scene. What we were talking no. about that's like that's like the first fifteen minutes of the movie. And then yeah, because when they go to dinner, he runs into his aunt and uncle, and he bothers them for a while, and there are all these good lines. And then the shoplifting scene is very long. In fact, the uh, the scenes at the his uh, penthouse where you get to see all of his absurd childish things, those aren't very long in this one. They're just sort of the bath scene in this is not is not a very big thing, even though it's on the poster. And that's just more for the image of Dudley Moore, I think. But yeah, so the way Steve Gordon structures the whole thing. And then it changes a lot throughout the movie. Um, Well, you know, what's weird about the fact that the Butler, you know, dies of cancer or whatever. It's like, it doesn't really change anything in the movie. I guess, I guess maybe it's supposed to help Arthur have an arc where he realizes that, you know, life is short and, 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 you know, you should follow your heart or something, but, uh, he he doesn't he never really has that arc, and that's it's kind of like one of the uh, the the irony of the movie that he doesn't change or anything. You I don't know somehow it's forgivable that like everything kind of works itself out in the end because of the 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 screwball comedy throwback thing. You know like 
the the or fairy tale uh, romance, to put it another way. Because you know, if you'll if you'll buy that this drunken millionaire playboy falls in love with this you know shoplifter waitress from Queens, then you could buy that. Well, the family, you know, then the drama is that the family wants him to marry this girl, and they're going to cut him off from the fortune if he doesn't. And he's going to get married to the rich girl, and then you know he says, "No, I can't do it." And then uh, the family just says, "All right, yeah." Okay. Well, you're forgetting that he, he, the the girl's father almost kills him. I mean, the the beating scene in Arthur's pretty severe. I mean, they, they he gets the shit beat out of him. Like, <laughs> yeah, he does. I think Dudley Moore does an actual head over heels uh, pratfall after getting belted. Yeah. yeah. So I feel no, like no, it's it's yeah. it's strong. It's strongly implied that the mean father-in-law is going to actually murder him <laughs> because because they make a big deal in an earlier scene about how when he was twelve he killed the burglar who was breaking into his into his family's home and he killed him with a knife and then at the <laughs> wedding he's <laughs> oh hey there's a knife <laughs> so yeah it's kind of, it's a little scary but oh I don't know okay so that the the fact that he's willing to put his life on the line, but, but his aunt who is withholding the, him from the family fortune, she doesn't know that he was being held up with a knife by the father-in-law. No, she walked in on it. Remember she stops him. Oh, okay. Yeah, she yeah. tells him not to fuck with her or something or don't screw with me. I, yeah, I think that the change in tone, well, the guy wrote Steve Gordon. I think he wrote, did he write for taxi? He wrote for the new Dick Van Dyke show. Uh, he wrote an episode of Chico and the Man. He wrote an episode of Barney Miller. He wrote a bunch of episodes of The Practice. Which is and, not the uh, same practice. No. <laughs> the one from the 70s. And a bunch of episodes of Good Time Harry. Huh. Maybe it's Good the Time only, Harry that's supposed to be really good. The only other movie he wrote prior to this was... A, a movie called The One and Only, where I guess Henry Winkler is becomes a professional wrestler in the fifties. <laughs> Looks, it's directed by Carl Reiner. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, while we're talking about lost careers, um, Henry Winkler did a lot of movies between <laughs> during <laughs> the Happy good. Days Run and Night Shifts. About the only one anybody remembers. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah, so I'm wondering if some of those sitcoms um, had that same sort of his ability, uh, Gordon's ability to change things up. But, I mean, the direction in this is really good. It's really good comedy direction, and it's kind of – okay, the other movie I was thinking of that sort of lit that gauzy lighting from this era is Being There. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 79. Yeah, so I mean, it's like there's this this bubble of movies that are all sort of softly lit, and, and I think they're all from Warner, so maybe it really was film stock. Um, and I, this the shot I'm thinking of is when he drives to the girlfriend's house to get engaged, and he's he's shit faced, and he's drinking and driving, and then he like pulls up in front of the house and. There's a break for him to laugh at his miserable life or whatever, <laughs> and then then on he goes. And yeah, well, uh, one thing about we're 
we have to get into Arthur too mm-hmm. uh, momentarily. So I'll just say one more thing about kind of what makes this movie work. Um, you're totally right about the comedy direction because not only is the story comprised of these long scenes that build, but they're directed in long takes. So there's kind of this natural feeling to things. And that's what makes Dudley Moore's performance so likable, I guess, is that it feels natural because, you know, he's playing a funny drunk. So you have to believe that he's drunk and he has to be funny while he's doing it. And Dudley Moore actually does make it seem like he's coming up with all these silly jokes off the top of his head. So even though the jokes are really like silly and, you know, cheap, uh, the performance sells it. Um, it's kind of, it's not quite Rodney Dangerfield in Caddyshack. Uh, speaking of Warner Brothers comedies from this time, but because um, Rodney Dangerfield's like doing his act in that movie, but making it seem congruent to, you know, walking through a golf shop or whatever. But Dudley Moore makes it seem like he's kind of coming up with it as he goes along. So it's really engaging and like really captivating. And if Steve Gordon actually wrote out all these lines in advance, that's kind of an amazing feat. Credit to him and Dudley Moore. Because you look at IMDb trivia and there were like a dozen other people who could have played Arthur. There was like, let me see here, Bud Court, John Belushi, um, John Travolta. You have to like wonder if any of these guys would have, you know, been able to make it work the way Dudley Moore did. And I think that I think he must have written him out because when John Gielgud respond has a rejoinder to some of them, they must have set that up because when they do play each other, they play when they do play off each other. Sometimes it's yeah. just phenomenal stuff. Yeah, yeah. Or or in the scene where he's meeting with the the father in law for the first time. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Arthur. Yeah, it, it's awesome. And yeah, everybody turned it down. Okay, <laughs> so let's let's take a little break here and then, and then uh, we'll be back with we'll Arthur. be right back yeah. with the rocks. The rocks. Arthur on on them and such. Uh, okay. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. Moin, wir die Mädels mit Akzente von dem Zwerz Universal Podcast. Ham Bahu Bashi Lerkia Hebraman Kepal Ke Podcast. Olá, nós somos as Mildas com Starks do Podcast Através do Universo. What? Moin, moin, I'm Matt. Namaste, I'm Nick. Olá, I'm Sophia. We're the chicks with accents. From across the universe podcast. Join us every fortnight. And we're back. So. Arthur 2 on the rocks. Yeah, the critic joke was Arthur 3, Revenge of the Liver, so I knew there had to be an Arthur 2. And I even remember walking through the video store as a kid, seeing Arthur 2 on the rocks and Dudley Moore holding the sign, you know, hey, brother, can you spare $75 million? Um, We watched the trailer for this that... That I, you you that you were one hundred percent correct in basing your low opinion of it on <laughs> your pre, your preconception was uh, uncanny, and I the, the, watching the trailer for Arthur too. I thought, well, this doesn't look so bad, and that's because you know all all five or six funny lines in the movie are in it. 
like like when the you know he's with the mean father-in-law again and he's and he's shooting uh, clay discs and he goes you must hate those things <laughs> like that's that's a funny line there's a uh, few i'm not saying there's no funny lines in arthur too there are but, some funny ones yeah um but yeah. it's got it's really got that syndrome of um caddyshack 2 where the the construction of just trying to recreate the elements of the original is just so uh, mechanical that it feels it feels insulting. It even does the thing of Caddyshack too, where they've got like a new theme song that references the original yeah, theme song. Yeah, I, I notice that too. Yeah. <laughs> because because in Caddyshack too, uh, Kenny Loggins is singing about like you know, well, it's all these years later, and I'm still trying to be the ball. And then in Arthur too, it's like you know, I've got the moon in New York City, <laughs> and now something else is happening. Yeah. So. I okay, so yes, I had I I had I've been disparaging Caddy or Arthur Two for for many years without knowing anything about it to the point that I didn't know that the father that the woman that he stands up at the end of the first one comes back in this one. It's a different actress because she wants him back because she really loves him. Uh, which yeah, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. But let's let's from the first second. It's like you know it's going to be really bad because it, it – so Dudley Moore was 53, probably 52 when he shot this. So he would have been – Actually, he was 50 – no, no, wait. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And so he must have been like mid-40s for Arthur. But he – you never wondered how old he was in Arthur. Yeah. I, well, it, I mean it, being, being a midget helps. Right. Rage. But – in this one, no, he looks he looks like an He's looking his an, age a bit. He's looking his age and he's got his accent. In Arthur, he never plays up the British. In this one he's throwing out British one liners, like accent jokes. And it doesn't make any sense because I'm sitting there going, He he's not supposed to be British. That's <laughs> Yeah, Arthur's not, not supposed to be British. I didn't really notice that, but yeah, you're There's right. There's some at the beginning, yeah. But it opens with him harassing somebody as they drive through Central Park, and he's like leaning out of the car window. And it's it's one of those things where it's not as bad. Well, holy shit, am I really going to say that? I was going to say it's not as bad as Fletch 2. Or maybe as it's worse. Is it worse than Fletch 2? It's worse than Fletch 2. Uh. It's so much longer yeah. than Fletch 2. It's, well, Fletch it's, 2 has this entirely other problem where, like, they tried to replicate none of the good things about the original, practically. And in this one, they just try to replicate everything they can from the original, and it's just... There, yeah, no, sub- Arthur, Arthur, oh. 2 has, Arthur 2 has the Caddyshack 2 syndrome, and they're both Warner Brothers. Um, I mean, Arthur 1, I noticed the Orion logo, so mm-hmm. I don't know if Warner Brothers distributed Arthur mm-hmm. 1, but yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, so this is when Warner Brothers was sequelizing their comedy franchises because Police Academy sequels were doing so well, and they just figured, well, we can make sequels out of all of our comedy properties. And yeah, it. I mean, yeah, yeah. It opens with him. It op- It opens with him doing his shtick, but like in a you know in a more outlandish way. Like you know he's he's tapping on the window of another guy's fancy car as they're driving 
so man, it's right on the tip of my tongue. It's got a bit of man, it's like Revenge of the Nerds too. <laughs> It's it's like some it's like a TV a TV guy is writing it, <laughs> so well, he's he's just like taking the shtick from the original and trying to like amp it up to the next level or turn it up a notch to get all Emerald Lagasse about it. And I feel like some of the problem is is that okay, so yeah, you've got a guy you've got Bud Yorkin directing it. Bud Yorkin, of course, being famous for producing television shows, not not writing them or directing them. I don't think. He only directed one other movie, so you didn't. They didn't even try to get uh, anybody with any comedy directing experience. Andy Brickman script. So some of the problem with writing Dudley Moore and Liza Minnelli married is that he doesn't really have a good conception of what their relationship would be after being married. She's rich now, so what? What's she been doing? With you know, since she's yeah, been rich, she's kind of her her character is like the most interesting thing in the movie, but for all the wrong reasons, because she's she's almost like giving a good dramatic performance as a wealthy woman who loses everything, <laughs> and it's kind of it, it's like well acted, but actually not really funny. <laughs> Right, and so there, there are these painful scenes where they make each other laugh, and they keep talking about how they make each other laugh. And yes, they did that in the first one because there were these brilliantly constructed comedy sequences. And in this one, it's just crap. Yeah, in this one, she just kind of laughs idiotically at everything he does and everything he says. And you're supposed to believe that, yeah, because he can make her laugh so much is why she's stuck with him. Yeah, and it's and it's the thing of like you know this character is not. A sequel was a really bad idea because you know this guy in real life would, you know, ultimately destroy himself. <laughs> I mean, talk about revenge to the liver and acute cirrhosis. I mean, that's what that's what would happen to a real life Arthur, and really soon, you know, even before you had time for an Arthur too. Also, he would probably, you know, the marriage would completely fall apart within a few years. But as Arthur two begins, we're just supposed to believe that they've. You know things have been great for the last uh, for the last five years or six years or, six or, how, year, or, or, or however or however long it's supposed to have been. Different because they can't give, decide. Yeah, different, different characters give contradictory amounts of time of how long it's supposed to have been since Arthur won. And I was thinking, like, was this on the shelf for a couple of years? Is that what happened? I think they were trying to not draw attention to the fact of how old Dudley Moore was, and I was like, dies fucking hair. I mean, that's that would help a little if you just dyed it jet black. And the, so most of the original cast returns, which... More than you needed. <laughs> more than you needed. Um, the family's back, his family's back, and they're... The dad's only in one scene that mimics the scene from the first one, and then he just disappears... And that doesn't yeah. seem very likely. And then the grandmother, like they're they're oh. trying to make old lady sex jokes, and they're just painful. Yeah. And I think oh, that right. the scene, right? There's a scene where Arthur's, it, what is it? His aunt, his grandmother, yeah, his grandmother. Yeah, yeah. His, his grandmother comes back, and yeah, she's played by the same actress. And there's just like this awful protracted joke scene of how she's hired a aerobics guy to come over and just bounce around so she can perv out watching him and that's 
that's like everything you need to know about bringing in, I don't know, TV and sitcom people to make the sequel to a funny film. That's that's it right there. And the right and and like you're saying, they bring back the mean father-in-law or you know would-be father-in-law, and they recast the uh, the you know the nasty woman who he's supposed to marry in the first one and it's like why you didn't need to do that to have a story where arthur loses his money i mean right. if the story of arthur i i and i was totally blindsided i was like i was i was totally down for okay it's the story of arthur losing his money and having to be poor that could be funny but then as soon as the father-in-law and and the woman come back like that's when you know it's really going to suck. <laughs> I knew it was going to suck when I saw it was 113 minutes. I was like, yeah, oh, it's, that, it's, that's it's, so so long. It's, like, it's yeah, it's like 15 minutes longer than the first one. Oh, and so yeah, because you know they had to have John Gilgood come back for as a ghost. Yeah, who Gil- Arthur's talking Gil- to. <laughs> Gilgood is third build like he was in the first one, but he literally has like two two scenes, and he doesn't come back until the last half an hour of the movie, and he's a ghost, much like Anthony Edwards appearing as a as a dream sequence in <laughs> Revenge of the Nerds too. Yeah, it's it's not good, um, and and it's not just that Gilgood only gets a cameo, and it's like false advertising because he's heavily in the trailer for Arthur too. They really tried to make it seem like he's a major character again. Um, but it's not just that. But uh, they, you know, you mentioned him earlier. They've got a new funny butler guy. Um, who was it? Stephen Elliott, right? No, no, no. no, no. It's Dad. poor. Paul Benedict. It's Paul Benedict. poor Paul Benedict. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, here the joke is that he doesn't have a sense of humor and he never gets Arthur's jokes. And actually it's not that, you know, not that unfunny just to use a double negative, but it's it's the Caddyshack 2 thing. It's like this is a mechanical reproduction of an element that people liked from the original. So let's do it again only with a different actor because it would cost too much to get Rodney Dangerfield again <laughs> or you know, whoever. Uh, Kathy, Kathy Bates is funnier than most of this movie is, and she's not playing a comic role, right? She's she's the kind-hearted, ridiculously kind-hearted adoption agency woman who's who uh, shows up and gives them a baby at the end, like it's like a muppet. Uh, it's a scene like it's out a, of the Muppets. Like, like a, ah, you've got a kid. Ah! She she delivers their new baby like it's a pizza at the end of the movie. Did you she, notice the babies played by different babies throughout? I wasn't paying that close. I, I, I was like, the eyebrows are different. They couldn't even keep the same baby. Oh, my God. And Yeah, so, I mean, there's like this – and, yeah, Liza Minnelli like, wants to have a kid, and you're just like – if they'd done it, like, with Little Arthur or something, and I don't know, it's just, uh, he keeps Hobson's room locked away, and that's supposed to be a thing, except Dudley Moore now looks too old to have these story arcs. I think, I, I mean, that's kind of the problem, is, is that... They brought back Liza Minnelli's dad. They bring for- back Liza Minnelli's dad, and that's one of the funnier scenes when he's, like, when he and Arthur, she's like, you two are turning into the same loser, Oh, yeah, know, they, him, they were, him yeah. and Arthur are finally bonding together. Right? Yeah, because they're both losers. But Bitterman, the um, 
the oh yeah the chauffeur's back I mean, yeah, the the butler, chauffeur, yeah the chauffeur yeah the, the valet right and all he does is smile and it's like in the first one there's a joke too that he is smiling at this like even though it's an incredibly frustrating situation you'll catch a shot of him and you'll be like wait he is has, he smiling and yeah he has that, and he has that cute scene where he you know gives Liza Minnelli the the fancy show right, of letting, him, yeah. letting her out of the car in in her neighborhood in Queens there, there's nothing but, but like he, that in but here he, he does abs- he does absolutely nothing and it's like wow they were just going down the cast list seeing who they could get like, oh yeah, they uh, and it's I mean for participation it's there's a lot everybody's back yeah except Jill Eikenberry so right the one, <laughs> the one maybe, person who is smart enough to stay away from this thing because you, yeah <laughs> what's weird about it is you're watching a movie that in some ways you. It, it makes you not want to like the people anymore. Or not that. It's that they're giving bad performances in roles that they previously gave good performances in. That's very weird. Yeah. No, I think the only the only person who acquits herself really is Liza Minnelli, but she acquits herself by not being funny. She actually, like, plays it dramatically, which only adds to the unfunniness because she, you know... If the if the circumstances weren't so dire, it might be a little easier to laugh about them, you know, having to live in a crappy apartment and Arthur can't get a job and stuff like that. But then you're thinking like, ah, Liza Minnelli, you know, she needs a good home for that kid that she wants, and it's so important to her. And hey, they're going to get the hey, kid wait anyway. Wait a minute, that's not funny. <laughs> but then they get the kid anyway, even though they were going to live in this. Well, that was the other thing is, is they move, they go and get an apartment. And then she finds them like two minutes later, and it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's even less believable than yeah. Kathy Bates, you know, it's it's even less believable than how Kathy Bates shows up with the baby on their doorstep at the end. Yeah, she somehow she's like psychic. She knows. They tell when they go to the adoption agency. She says, you know, oh, okay, you know, I'll be stopping by later. You know, I'm not going to tell you when. That's kind of the idea. I just want to see you, you know, having an average day. And and you're thinking, oh boy, there's going to be a big wacky misunderstanding coming up. And there's and, not. <laughs> and there's not only is there not a wacky misunderstanding, but it's an impossible uh, scene because yeah, they haven't even. They haven't even paid for the apartment yet, have they? I mean, no, they didn't know if they were going to get this apartment or not. They came – they showed up to look at it, and then as soon as the landlord leaves, Kathy Bates shows up, and it's like, what? Did they t- – how did – no. Yeah. Yeah, and then – It's one of the dumber things I've seen in any movie in a long time. There's a lot of – I mean, yeah, that's kind of the thing is you're just like, wait, is – there's this whole thing where he – does an investigation of the nasty father-in-law to be, and oh, he's going to blackmail him into giving him his money back. And then the guy, like, my favorite is I'm sitting there during the. Well, okay, one more thing on the kid thing. Okay, he, they're worth seven hundred and fifty million dollars. I don't think you go to an adoption agency if you need to adopt a kid. <laughs> like, really, this is this is nineteen eighty eight money. They probably could buy one for ten <laughs> grand easy. Like, yeah. I mean- South Africa was still apartheid, right? They could have gotten a cheap white kid from there. Yeah. Um, but then 
the scene. Oh God, more dumb stuff in the movie. Let me let me try and think. Well, well it's kind of like part of, part of what a whole bunch of dumb stuff happens because they felt the need to recreate the plot of the first movie by having Susan Johnson and you know and her father come back and and they still Susan Johnson still wants to marry Arthur. Because by bringing that back, that becomes their reason for Arthur losing his money. Like, I, th- I thought there was going to be some kind of logical reason for that happening. Like, you know, the family fortune is lost in a, you know, crooked bond, you know, junk bonds or something because it's 1988 or, you know, the stock market crash of 87 or something. No, it's because it's because Susan Johnson's dad blackmails the family into – by like buying a controlling share of the of their and, company, and they're too dumb to hire yep. lawyers to read it. That's right. why, yeah. Because then it just become because then it just becomes about you know is Arthur going to marry Susan Johnson again? And that's so much less interesting than just the circumstances of Arthur needing to look for work. That's one of the few funny scenes in the movie where he goes to interview for the hardware store. And you know, any any charms the hardware store owner because he's an old himself. drunk, yeah. Because he's an old drunk, right, right. And they and they have a drink together, yeah. Like that's that's one of the few good scenes in the movie. And you're thinking, and 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 it takes like half the movie to get there. It takes half the movie to get to a scene of him applying for a job because of the Susan Johnson plot recycling from the first one. Okay, oh, that's that's what I was forgetting about. Okay, so the final scene where he – okay, so he tries to blackmail the dad and to, to give him his money back and they, they laugh at him because it's all out of the statute of limitations, which doesn't seem likely, but whatever. And then the guy proceeds to pull a gun to shoot Arthur. Right, because he threatened his life at the end of the first movie, so he has to threaten his life again. And then my my favorite though is when he's just casually pointing the gun at the daughter's head, <laughs> and I'm right. just like, wait, is he? He's pointing the gun at her head, right? Like this is. Yeah, she doesn't seem phased by any of this. Wow, this, is, this is normal behavior, you know. And then, right, and then, um, you know, there's, there's so much unbelievable stuff in this movie. It was unbelievable enough that Arthur's fam to me it was unbelievable enough that Arthur's family would just shrug and say, Ah, what the hell, we'll give you the money back. But in this one it's 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 the evil father in law who says, Oh, what the hell? Right. Yeah, I'll, it's just like I'll give oh, you your money back. If, if you don't want to marry him anymore, I don't care anymore. And it's just like yeah, and- oh, I know. <laughs> And this isn't one of those – I don't think this is one of those things where they were like rewriting the movie as they were shooting no, it. No, it just I, sucked all the time. No, this is this is just a terrible, inane, nonsensical plot. And it didn't have to be, but they felt like it had to be so much of a clone of the first one that it everything just becomes incredibly convoluted. I, and also there's the – Yeah, I mean, it does try to mimic the story beats of the first one. But then the scene where Hobson comes back, it's this long sequence where they're walking around together. And, oh, it's yeah. just so bad. Well, I mean, first, 
Because first of all, it's insulting enough that you know it's it's 1988, and you saw John Gilgood in the trailer, and you assumed that you weren't going to have to wait for an hour and twenty minutes just to get ten minutes of him. <laughs> so they it finally comes around to his scenes, and well, you know they're not as funny, <laughs> and they're just walking around. Um, it's not like he. I guess you're expecting him to give him some Obi-Wan Kenobi type advice that helps him figure out how to solve all of his problems. Instead, he just tells him that I've seen your kid and he has beautiful eyes. And it's like, oh, creepy. John Gilgood, John Gilgood's ghost is spying on people and reporting back to Arthur. And also, you know, to say nothing of the metaphysical implications, um, because then how does how does uh, Arthur get the evidence against the dad? It just kind of – oh, he just – he asks his grandmother. For a which, tip, which, yeah. Which, which, which again makes no sense because it's like, well, wait a minute, grandma. Do you care that your grandson's being blackmailed out of the fortune or, or don't you? Because now you're being blackmailed into keeping him out of the family fortune. So if that's – not what you want to happen, then you shouldn't be helping him. <laughs> it's just—it's so dumb. Uh, yeah, it really is. And, and it's just—and there's nothing. I think the thing that bothered me about it is there's really nothing. There's nothing good about it. There's no. There's a couple good lines, but I mean. Oh, well, actually, that <laughs> Arthur getting the evidence does lead to one funny scene, which would just be a funny scene in any movie, which is like a little a brief parody of uh, of all the president's men, where a deep throat type shows up in a parking yeah. structure to give him the envelope, and he says, "Why did you Why did you need us to meet here?" And he goes, "Oh, I'm parked over there." So you know, there's that, but that could have been in any movie. <laughs> and poor Paul Benedict is the new butler. Um... I saw him in the opening credits, and I was like, "Oh shit! I bet he's the new butler." Because, um, I mean, yeah, that's the other thing is it, it, it really mistreats the new cast members too. <laughs> Kathy yeah. Bates, I'm just like, Kathy Bates, really? Holy shit! Yeah, as young and as hot as I've ever seen her. <laughs> <laughs> and then, well, even um, she even, she she managed she managed to put on a lot of weight between this and Misery, and this was that was only two years later. <laughs> I was really hoping that at some point she would just kill them and it would be a precursor. It would be an unofficial prequel <laughs> Pre- to Misery. Just yeah, all just of a sudden break, she'd whack them over the heads. Breaking, like, hey! breaking Dudley Moore's foot with a sledgehammer, sure. <laughs> but, uh, well, what's his name here? Um, Jack Guilford plays the their landlord who's the amusing old landlord. And I was like, he's... He's, ah, he's kind deaf. of famous, uh-huh. yeah, but he's he's a kind hear. of a famous guy, and he is a famous guy. Um, at the time, he had been coming off of the Cocoon movies, and I. It seems very. It seems a very topical sequel, and that's why. Oh well, that's yeah. That's something else I wanted to mention. Um, but like, how how did you notice its topicality? You go first. Well, okay, so the cat, the him showing up, and it's you know a year after Cocoon or two years after Cocoon, and they're they're trying to fill in with people from that kind of thing. The music is by oh god, what's his name? The guy who did what, Lady in Red this time. 
the theme song, which had come out two Lady in Red had come out a couple of years earlier. I thought it was. Well, I thought it was Burt Baccarat again. He wrote it, but no, it's still the. Um, it's a different singer. It's. Um, yeah, the theme to Arthur too. Which which has nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> Well, that's that one of the funny things in Arthur. Like, um, I don't think uh, it wasn't in the opening credits, but by the time they replay the theme at the end credits, like the lyrics become a recap of the movie. <laughs> like, you know, Arthur's just a boy at heart, and I was like, oh, it's singing about the movie we just saw. Yeah. Okay, love is love is my decision. Theme from Arthur Two on the rocks. Not, nice, nice, no. nice mouthful of a title there, performed <laughs> by Chris DeBerg. Who yeah. did apparently a song called "Lady in Red," which is supposedly awesome, <laughs> or was Are you very the fam- woman in red with no, Gene Wilder? The lady in red, his famous 1986 love song. Oh, okay. I, I, yeah, and it was, and he he co-wrote the theme to Arthur too with Burt Baccarat and another person. Because it's because it because it because it, it's you know it's definitely sounds like the theme to Arthur one. It's you know pretty much just a variation on it but then the the score the bird back rack score is terrible um it's like barely it's barely noticeable some of it feels it well i think some of the problem with hiring a guy who worked so much in tv and i'm I'm talking about york and not not the writer is that a lot of the setups they feel like sitcom setups oh yeah like well, like the old guy you were just mentioning, the landlord, it, there's this big, long, unfunny prop joke where he gets into his electric wheelchair to go up the stairs, and it takes forever. And that's, and they stretch that joke out to like two minutes or something. It's painful. That's kind of funny because, you know, Gremlins, of course. Yeah, Gremlins wrote the book on electric wheelchair jokes. Now, when did you notice it was topical? I just noticed that much like Caddyshack 2, again, suddenly the class consciousness that was just kind of subtext in the original is now very blatant text. Um, Arthur 1 doesn't make too big a deal of, you know, the fact that Minnelli is playing a girl from Queens. I mean, it's just kind of taken matter-of-factly, like... Yes, she's a working class girl from Queens. Of course, she doesn't fit in with all the rich snobs that Arthur's used to. That's why they fall in love. But um, in Arthur too, when they're like reintroducing Susan Johnson, um, you know, she's like working at the art gallery, and I can't quite tell, but it seems like the joke is supposed to be that nobody would want to have art in their homes, and the paintings <laughs> are are bad, but but they're not bad paintings at all. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's the joke because Stephen Elliott's looking at the paintings with her and he's like, you know, oh boy, this is a good one. And it's like, yeah, it is a good one. <laughs> um, and then, <laughs> and then uh, there's again to the, to the Liza Minnelli playing it almost too seriously thing. There's this, there's the scene where Susan Johnson shows up to, uh, you know, their new apartment and they have this really nasty, you know, under the, you know, between the lines conversation where, you know, they're, you know, it's like, you know, I want Arthur and no, you'll never have him. And like, oh, nice, nice apartment, poor person. And, <laughs> and there's there's nothing that overtly hostile towards the rich and Arthur one, much like Caddyshack, too, or suddenly it's like it's 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 a big deal that. 
you know, uh, Jackie Mason wants to get into the Wasp Country Club instead of just, hey, Wang, I think this place is restricted, so don't tell him you're Jewish. Okay, all right. <laughs> well, the other thing is, is I like how at the ending, well, I guess that's one of the, the things that I, I missed was that you're supposed to be worried that he and Liza Minnelli aren't going to get back together. And I was like, but but their, their reason for breaking up is stupid, so why worry about it that much? Yeah, they – right. There's like one what, – well, what they break up because after they've lost the money, he's not making enough of an effort to get a job. He lo- no, he's that, she, oh, no, no, she, she just – she realizes that they're – yeah, he's not going to – he's he can't – he doesn't know how to be poor. Or something like that, yeah. So, and then, so she's like, okay, you know, you can go marry the girl. I'm going to leave you so you can marry the girl and get the money back because I love you so much. Right. Poor her. And then at the end, what um, what solves all their problems is money. <laughs> he has this elaborate, you know, hey, you know, we're rich again. Oh, yeah. See, it's just awful. Right. Yeah. It's the Muppet. It's the Muppet's Muppet type movie scene <laughs> of people <sighs> gathering around outside the apartment. Oh, oh, and there's Warner Brothers corporate synergy because he shows up with stuff Sylvester's and Bugs they were Bunch. so big on that in the late <laughs> in the late eighties. It was all it's one, about it's one that. of my favorite. It's one of my favorite things to notice in Warner Brothers movies from this era is how often they snuck in Looney Tunes characters. And, I, and of course, culminating in um, Gremlins two. Gremlins two, yeah, Gremlins. Gremlins two being the end of this era of Warner Brothers sequels in a lot of ways, where they just tried. Oh, yeah. to... Hey, that's you know what? That's a good point. I, I mean, know. We, so... We've been we've been knocking Warner Brothers comedy sequels, and yet we wouldn't have Gremlins, Gremlins two without it. Yeah. So yeah, I, there's probably some interesting story about that um, of how Warner ran there. Yeah, because it's just it's well. What what's funny is is that I guess the screenwriter he um, disowned it, and there's an anecdote on IMDb that in his hometown he he waited outside the theater to apologize to people. And I'm like, nobody saw this in the theater. It's terrible <laughs> shit. Um, yeah, but you know that that implies that he wrote a funny script that got massively changed, but. You know, the movie's like not quite ramshackle in such a way that implies that it was heavily rewritten. It just because the story is the story relies too much on bringing back all these characters and situations from the first one. So it's it all seems very pre-planned. You have to one, you know, yeah, no, he he seem seems like he should take a share of the blame. And then Dudley Moore. Um, similarly disowned it, and I was like, he was the executive producer. He was clearly like, I need a hit. Right. I need a hit after my friggin' body swap comedy and friggin' Santa, Santa Claus, Claus. <laughs> Although Santa Claus the movie was like four years before this, so I don't know. Uh, yeah. well, it's, 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 its impact was long-lasting. I don't know if there's anything else we can say about that. Yeah, I think we've said plenty. I, I think we said... I, I got done watching it, and my response was, I want to watch the first one again, so I like the characters. <laughs> I want to remember what that was like. I'm just like, it's so fucking bad. Oh, it might be one of the... It, mm, 
Yeah, I think I dislike it more than Fletch 2. Because Fletch 2 is at least not long, and I don't know. It's bad in more interesting ways. Cool Harold Faltemeyer music. Yeah, and it's bad in more interesting ways than this. That's true. I think I hate Fletch Lives more because there could have been a real... It would have been easier to make a better Fletch... A good Fletch sequel than a good Arthur sequel or a good Caddyshack sequel, for that matter. Okay. But, um, yeah, Fletch Lives is a, an interesting failure. And, heck, even Caddyshack 2 is an interesting failure. But Arthur 2 is just dull, deadly dull, and, and insultingly dumb. Uh, so don't see it. Don't see Arthur 2. Go, go out and get the uh, Blu-ray double feature and just throw out the Arthur 2 test. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like, I don't know what else to say about it. No, no, I think we've said plenty. So, speaking of sequels, um, next episode is going to be another double feature of, uh, well, kind of an abortive franchise attempt. Um, it's The Fly, the Cronenberg one, plus The Fly 2, which most people probably forgot even exists. Um, it's directed by Chris Wallace, who, speaking of Gremlins, was the guy who designed gremlins uh the gremlins effects so it's got great gore and everything else in it stinks it's got eric stoltz um still reeling from being replaced uh in back to the future and um i haven't seen it since i was a teenager so i'll probably not enjoy it nearly as much now and i didn't even enjoy it much then um and you've never seen i've uh, never the, seen the either Fly. of them i I think I saw, I've seen the original Fly, and I've seen maybe one of the sequels, but yeah, I never saw, I never saw the Cronenberg Fly. I remember the previews to the Fly 2 quite a bit. I don't know if you remember them, the, um, it's like the birthing room, it's the, the, when she gives birth to it and there's screaming and it just goes to the fly too. Yeah. No, but I'm kind of surprised that you never saw the fly, not just because it's kind of regarded as a, you know, like one, one of the few good remakes or, you know, one of the best eighties horror movies or one of the best Cronenberg movies, but it was like a big, deal at the time it was, it was a big like deal a, but i was it was I, like a main it was like a breakthrough mainstream kind of horror movie the same way aliens was yeah and, and it was came out the about same the year. same yeah it was yeah. yeah yeah so i you're well i think you're i know i don't want to hype it up for you but i think you're in for a treat and uh that'll be our next episode so uh yeah please check back with us for that um and that about wraps it up so for an alan smithy podcast this has been matt and this has been andrew and thanks for listening. Once in your life, you find her. Someone who turns your heart around. And next thing you know, you're closing down the town.
We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Best of Nalan Smithy Podcasts. This is Lucy Walden. Good evening.